When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. As a comedian, Jabuki Young-White is best known for his work on Big Mouth and The Daily Show, as well as a provocative and hilarious Twitter presence that's led to multiple suspensions over the years. An aversion to earnestness and sentimentality made Jabuki a comedy star. But as a vehicle for more complex feelings, he found jokes to be limiting. Around the same time he was looking to stretch his intellectual and emotional side, Jabuki was offered the kind of opportunity that only really comes along to those already doing well for themselves. While he was working on a scripted project inspired by Juice World's music, announced in 2021 and as yet unreleased, demos and beats Jabuki had quietly spent years making and posting anonymously on SoundCloud made their way to an Interscope executive. Impressed by what they heard, Interscope offered him a record deal. All Who Can't Hear Must Feel, Jabuki's entirely self-produced debut album, feels both playful and carefully curated. It's a collection of songs that speaks to a music obsessive having fun with lyrics, beats and instruments, while also fleshing out feelings that can't be neatly condensed into five minutes at the comedy cell. BBC, showcasing Jabuki's breathless flow and steamy hip house beats, is a love letter to rap's queer history. While Not Me, though, is anti-capitalist sentiment adorned with pop hooks. Field recordings captured during Jabuki's first trip back to Jamaica, where he was born and raised until the age of five, add depth. And a scattergun approach to genre pushes the album into hyperpop, dancehall, and shoegaze territories along the way. Speaking to the faders David Renshaw in the run-up to the new album's release, Jabuki honed in on what he wants to explore through his music, shed light on his influences, opened up about the trepidation he felt making a record in the first place, and dismissed the similarities between music and stand-up comedy. I feel like it's kind of a very modern trait to have a hobby or an interest, a talent even, and immediately be thinking like, how do I monetize this? (laughs) How do I take this and make it something bigger? Have you kind of resisted that urge for a while? And how long did it take you to kind of really want to fully go for it with the music? Well, honestly, it kind of wasn't even up to me fully. I'd been working on music for a long time and it had always been a passion of mine. I know it's almost like wrote for a musician to say this, but I did grow up in a musical household. There was a lot of music. My dad was a DJ. My mom sang in the church choir. Honestly, I really hope my mom doesn't listen to this and I hate to put her on blast, but like I was fighting for my life defending my mom and her singing in the church choir. I was getting into tussles of people being like, your mom cannot sing. People being like, shut up. Yeah, she can. It was bad, but we grew up like around music constantly. Music never really felt like this world that you have to enter and you have to have these qualifications and you have to approach it in this like sacred kind of way. I think it is beautiful and it is sacred and it's like one of the coolest things that human beings do. But at the same time, it just felt like such an extension of being alive that I didn't see it as like 
this big ceremonious heavy thing. With that being said, I kind of was just always doing it in the background and I was keeping a like foot in the door, like keeping the door cracked. Like maybe one day, I don't know. Like when I first moved to New York, I was doing stand up and I was just like making beats during the day and was just like posting them on SoundCloud and shit and then doing open mics at night. And then like the thousand dollars that I moved to New York with ran out and I was like, all right, I can't be like double unemployed. Like I have to do something. And comedy just like, there was so much community built into that and like electronic music and the way that I was making it was so insular and like hierarchical, like in a way that comedy kind of, the door was way more open at that time. So I just like kept making music and then fast forward years later, I was working with Interscope Films on a project and they were like, it was going to be animated. It was going to be based off of Juice World's music, not necessarily his life, but like his music. And they were trying to float me as like a writer director and were like, well, you don't really have directing experience. Do you have music experience? Have you ever made stuff before? And I was like, well, yeah, I do. So then I sent them some demos and like they passed it along internally and they were like, do you want to go for it? And I was like, I cannot say no to this. I was like, I see the logic for doing it so that I could like continue to position myself and my image in a certain way. But A, that just felt dishonest. And then B, I knew I would regret it if I went down that road. So I was like, I have no choice. But yeah, it is It is something that, that impulse to be like, there's something beautiful that I really care about and it's bringing me so much joy. How do I make money off of this? Like, I was genuinely kind of scared. I was like, when this becomes like work and I have to start doing things for it that maybe aren't on my terms or like aren't on my schedule or like I have to start making sacrifices for this like you do for a job will I still be in love with it and I still love music so that hasn't gone anywhere one of the tensions at the heart of the album is the kind of push and pull between sentiment and irony how do you how do you kind of expose yourself without feeling like you're fully exposed, I suppose. Did you have any fear of releasing music when you were already established as a comedian? Did you kind of think there's a situation where this ends up hurting me in both on both sides of the fence? It's funny because I didn't feel that way until things were actually coming to fruition. Because when I was making the music, I was like, uh, okay, there's this new virus out that we all might die. So like, fuck it like why like when the songs were actually coming together that wasn't really at the front of my mind but then as things started to take shape again and on the other side of 2020 then I was like hmm okay I'm kind of like in an interesting position right now um and the fear definitely is there. It's not something that I've totally written off it's something that I still think about in like kind of grapple with. But then what I came to realize is so much of what I was trying to put into the music and so much of what I was doing in the music was just subject matter or feelings or things that I couldn't readily express in the comedic voice that I had already set up for myself. Knowing that I was already kind of feeling a little restricted with the, I don't know, frame that I had created for myself comedically, I think being at risk of leveling everything and having to like rebuild from that is kind of exciting at the same time. I just knew that I 
needed to change something and I'd love to do like a slight remodeling or like add another little room to the house that I've built. But if I have to level it and then go from there, then that'll be it too. Yeah, it's interesting you say that that the music world offered you kind of a an opportunity or a space to express things that you couldn't maybe fit into the comedy. Music historically has been much more open and accepting and defined by kind of black and queer artists, maybe in a way that comedy perhaps has less less examples of, shall we say. Could you talk a bit about the feelings and the ideas that you wanted to express somehow, maybe couldn't get into the comedy, but found their way and a home in the music? There was so much. I think at the heart of what it was, was this kind of feeling of disillusionment, um, but also growth at the same time. I think being first generation, being queer, my parents being Jamaican immigrants, there was like a bill that I was sold about what America would be like. And I'm the first born child. So like, I didn't have anyone who was above me like day to day telling me this is what they're saying it is. This is what it actually is. At that point, like when I started working on this project, like just after turning 25, I went back to Jamaica for the first time since I was like five years old. I just gained this perspective. I was able to close the gulf of what I experienced the world to be and what I was told the world was and what the world was going to be like. And I think that sort of thing was something that I was having a hard time exploring in comedy, specifically because like at the core of it, even underneath that, comedy is so defined by who you're performing it for in a way that music is not always, especially if you're like a bedroom act and the album is coming together like how it was for me it kind of is like a conversation between you yourself and the computer and like whatever medium you're working in. Whereas with comedy, the medium itself is defined by the audience's reaction to it. Like if you're performing a set and no one's laughing, that's not necessarily comedy, unless it's like, you know, a Kaufman sort of situation where it's like down the road, this will be funnier when you're like watching it on video or it's in conversation with an audience. And I just felt like I was, having a hard time finding that audience where I wasn't having to over explain myself and overextend myself. And I felt like with music, I could just say it, put it out there, let it exist within its own right. Whether or not you see it when you engage with it, it's still there. Like I was able to at least get the idea across. Honestly, honestly, truly, I feel like when that nigga died, he instantly thought about what, what actually matters in life the genuine shit that he actually has. That's just crazy. Cause it was the most blatant sign of like, nigga. <laughs> like stop doing this and do this. That's it wild because my dream is gonna be everything. You mentioned your trip to Jamaica there, which is kind of first time back since you were a child. And I know that you captured a lot of kind of field recordings and snippets of audio that have made their way into the album. I wondered if you could talk to me a bit about what you captured and the, the ways in which you used it. So there are a few different field recordings that made it into the project. On Hate Clips Part 2, there's a conversation that I was having with my brother where one of our childhood friends had been killed and we were kind of unpacking the entire situation. This was also someone who I was like, was my first love in many ways. And I think that was incorporated 
the field audio in Jamaica was incorporated out of a way to pull like real heart and skin into the album in a way where, like how you were saying earlier, that struggle between sentimentality and irony and detachment, pulling in these grounding totems kind of to root it in something that is real and physical and tangible and honest in a way that maybe I might struggle to be. I found those to be like almost like emotional infrastructure for the project where it's like, all right, I can be like irreverent toward myself. I can be self-effacing. But when it comes to pulling in like the voice of someone that I care about or a moment that meant a lot to me, I kind of have to approach that with a little bit more respect. With my brother, there was that excerpt and that little snippet. And then in um, Solid States, that's like one of the ones that has a couple that were recorded in my trip back to Jamaica. And I have a clip of like talking to my cousin who hasn't le- stayed on the island his whole life, made like a great life for himself. He's a psychologist, does really well, but he was kind of unpacking how he sees the American and like the West state of being and how to him, it's just like built on this concept where you're just constantly trying to distract yourself with like entertainment or these like shiny objects and all these things. I thought it was interesting to go into the track with that and then also bring into the mix this conversation that my aunt um, who passed away during COVID and my grandmother were having about this friend they have who like a common thing in my family and with like so many Jamaican women of a certain age is like, you'll go to Canada, you'll go to the UK, you'll go to America and you'll like look after a family. Like my grandma, when she came to Chicago to stay for a while, she was taking care of this old guy who was maybe like a few years older than her. Really was not in a place where it's like, she's this strong strapping young woman and he's this frail. Like, no, they were just kicking it. They were hanging out. There was really no like real caretaking dynamic that was like clear there. And that conversation of that labor that they give, and then my aunt kind of gossiping about someone and saying how like when they go, they don't pray, they don't read the Bible, they don't like get their spiritual hustle up, and they just like stay inside all day and they don't like really challenge themselves. And the track is like really dense. There's like a lot to peel back. After I'd gone, I had watched Black Girl by Usman Sembene. And it was like on Criterion. It was part of Scorsese's collection. And the entire plot just being this woman who is taken to France and then made to work for this family. And the like the idea of labor in exchange for the promise of prestige. Like when she gets the job, she's like, I'm going to France. I'm going to be in France. This is going to be amazing. I'm going to work for these white people in France. And she's like so excited. It immediately called me back to that. And then I had this other conversation with my mom about how when she was a kid, she was sent to like work for this super rich family and they like sent her to school and stuff. But in exchange, she was like, an indentured servant to them, essentially. With that, she was able to go to that prestigious school and like do all that stuff. And it just made me think of like this line of 
the idea of having to work for less than what you're worth in order to get this shiny object. And in terms of the disillusionment and everything that I was feeling, it was just like those field recordings kind of immediately materialize it in a way which like I was saying earlier, I literally don't know how I would explain that in a stand-up set without it becoming like like a one a one person show, which is like cool, but I also do love stand-up and I do wanna just like be funny sometimes. But I still wanna express those ideas and like give them what they're worth and like the weight that they deserve. To sum it up, I would just say they were like grounding techniques kind of the field recordings. So the album is titled All Who Can't Hear Must Feel, which is kind of a saying adapted, I think, from something your parents would tell you as a child, a kind of warning to listen to advice. Can you explain a little bit about why you wanted to take that proverb and use it as a title? Why, why was it the right name for this project? So when I'm writing lyrics specifically, but in general, I love a good double entendre or like a uh, saying or little sentence that has so many layers that you could just peel back and look at it from all these different angles. And I just felt like that was so juicy. It was just charged. There was a lot to mine from that. The one interpretation being the one you just mentioned. On top of that, I was just working on this project at a time where I was learning a lot of stuff the hard way, just through lived experience and just having to go through the thing myself. Even if someone told me that it was going to be this way, I never would have been able to fully appreciate or understand it as much as I did having lived it and experienced it and felt it for myself. Even just sonically, the project. So my dad was really into sound clash culture when he was growing up. When he came to the US, he was like, DJing and would do all these DJ nights. I was like nine years old having to move these gigantic ass subwoofers like into a box truck and shit. He would play music and it would like rattle. It was in the basement. It rattled the foundation of the house. And it, it was such a sensory experience. It was like that. And then even I remember when Amelie came out and it was like, I knew that song, not even necessarily by the lyrics, but by how the windows rattled when it would be playing in a car that was driving by. And it was those like tactile experiences that really influence how I make music and how I enjoy music. So the low end on this project is just like jam packed. Like every song is just kind of this huge, almost like bursting kind of uh feeling and I thought sonically it, it played really well with that too so it was just like a bunch of different a bunch of different layers to it you said your dad being a DJ is obviously kind of a foundational thing for you and your relationship to music what, what are your memories of growing up with a DJ as a dad was he kind of like out every weekend was he playing music around the house a lot what, what was the kind of situation there 
it was music around the house a lot. Would be out on weekends, weeknights too. Terrible relationship with the guy, like no contact with him. But like one thing that I did get is that from a young age, he was always like, you have to listen to every kind of music. You have to listen to everything. That kind of gave me a genre agnosticism where I am just looking for something that I don't really know I'm looking for until I see it in music. I don't really have like a preset rubric. So there was just so many different genres, so many different styles being played in the house. Also learned from a young age that it does not matter what the song is, there is a rock steady cover of it. I promise you any song, any conceivable song, there is a rock steady or a reggae cut of it, of any song in the world with just like a bunch of lasers in the background. The soundtrack of a Star Wars sequel just mapped onto a rock steady version of Dua Lipa. Like it, that exists somewhere. So there was that. I remember though, he would always be like, I haven't even reached my full powers yet. Like I'm not playing at the loudest volume that I can. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And I remember he was playing this like outdoor festival, maybe like 20 blocks from our house. And you could hear the shit like loud as day from our house. And I was like, you're actually actively harming people who are, near you if they don't have on protective gear and <laughs> you're playing music this loud. But yeah, a lot of that was foundational to how I see music and how I enjoy music now. To to the point that like I think electronic music to me has never felt like inorganic, I guess. I, I think that there's um some people have like a hurdle to like the whole like real instruments thing. Like I get what it means, but like on a feeling level, I'm like, I don't see how you could put that on a hierarchy. They're like just two different vibes, two different moods. I don't think one is less than the other, but I think growing up around like electronic music and someone who was so dedicated to electronic music, I think um, that was really, really influential. Yeah, you say that the album is kind of genre agnostic and it yeah, really is. It kind of moves all over the place and track to track and even within songs kind of jumping from sound to sound. But is it fair to say that electronic music is kind of your home territory, if we like? I'm not going to ask you to list your favorite albums or anything, but you know what I mean? Like, is that kind of where you feel the most comfortable? I think that is where my taste and my skill level matches up the closest. When it comes to like acoustic shit, we're in two different universes. Some of the songs that are using acoustic instruments like Goner or Incel, a lot of those I just like played the melody very badly, corrected it, and then kind of like sampled that. So I, I feel like even if I were to buckle down and really like learn guitar or like really master an acoustic instrument, I still would be running it through so many granular synths or I'd be sampling it or like reversing it. That is my favorite thing to do in the studio. The engineer on the project, Alex Popol, the sound engineer, when I was doing some re-recordings, he immediately knew when I would like do something, I'd be like, yep, flip it, flip it, reverse it, stretch it. Like the sound of the thing being pushed to its limits is... I feel um, such a part of electronic music. It's harder to capture that vibe in, in acoustic stuff. So yeah, like short answer, definitely. 
And were there any kind of artists or albums that you were listening to while making the album that kind of acted as a, if not an influence, then kind of a guiding hand through the process? There was a lot of stuff where I made it because when I was making the songs, I built up so much time of not cutting vocals or writing lyrics to anything that I was doing. I was just making instrumentals and 2020, maybe like summer, I was like, okay, I got this time. Let me actually try to make songs. Like I'm not just going to do like sound experiments or like little like mood loops or whatever. I, I want to like make something that feels a little bit more concrete. I would do it and then listen back to it. And when you're doing it, you're like so caught up in your own, the, the thing that you're selling. Cause like I, I'm so committed to it in the moment. And then I would take a step back and be like, oh, that's where I got that from. And immediately be like, okay, that was clearly like my take on this thing. These were all things that were just so in my bones that when it came time, those were all of the things that I was pulling on. During the project itself, honestly, I was listening to a lot of Afro Psych, which ended up being folded into the project. Column My Friend by Amanaz. I sampled that on LA. Yeah, like Incel kind of has like a like Afrobeat inspired kind of drum. Like I can't even catch myself. I'm just not selectively permeable enough. Like shit just gets in my head and I'm just like, oh yeah, that's cool. I like that. So it was really sponge like, I don't know. One thing that you do kind of nod to or riff on almost is um, on your song 26. There's kind of a play on Buju Banton's kind of famously homophobic dancehall song, Boom Bye Bye. What did you want to achieve with taking on that song? In comedy, I love joking about things that feel a little spicy. Uh, like there has to be like a twinge of something in me where I'm like, oh, this feels like a little mischievous. I don't know, like some of the tweets, impersonation things and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, this feels fun and exciting and genuinely kind of dangerous. And I'm like, okay, what happens next? But for that, I think it kind of also came from the fact that Boom Bye Bye, like the instrumental is so good. It's just so terrible that he chose that song to like truly so one of the most effective hate campaigns in the history of music. It, it's sad that that's what he chose. To, and the, the melody is like decent. Like it's a good melody on it. The frustration of being like, that, damn, that's a good song. Like being angry about that. And then also um, being able to look at that song with a reverence kind of felt like growth too. It, like it already took up space in my mind. The frustration of like, damn, that is a, like catching myself humming that song sometimes. And then... I'm not going to do that and then also be mad that I've been like denigrated or excluded by the song. One thing that I realized with that and kind of with the project is I've always been kind of obsessed with entering 
an arena that I've been told that I'm not allowed. I remember when I was starting stand-up in Chicago, I was like 19, queer black kid. It's literally just like a bunch of early 30s to late 30s, like white alcoholic Irish Catholic dudes in some of these open mics that I'm doing. And the momentary delusion that I experienced where I'm like, yeah, you can't tell me that I can't do like, not even can you not tell me there's nothing weird about what I'm doing at all. And truly believing and feeling that this is so much to talk about in regards to a song that is 36 seconds, (laughs) but it stood for a lot. It stood for a lot for me. 26, but my gun 47. Problematic age gap, I'm off the act. I hit you back tomorrow when I'm off my bullshit. Block you with a dildo in my toolkit for the preacher in his pulpit. Hey, brush your top off, that's your man and your Abdullah. I've long got a, got a lot of problems. Bet that chopper solve them, y'all wash off. My trace say on flossing. Slide them fanny draws above him. His dick is scary, I'm flossing. Wait, never gave a fuck about a whole lot of pole. Miss I'm a We've talked about some of the kind of heavier side of the album thematically and inspirational wise. It's not that it's not an, a funny album as well. There's lots of jokes and, you know, your your humor and your levity comes through at all times. I was wondering if you had like a particular line, joke, kind of reference that you're most fond of. Like I, I like how um, BBC references like Stanley Tucci and the Duracy column, I believe. Personally, is there any kind of lines or jokes in there that you're particularly fond of? The one that I laugh at still, it, it was a um, freestyled line. Like I was just doing a pass over the beat and just like, like trying to find the flow and then maybe getting a sentence out here or there. Just met a Middle Eastern guy. He came twice as Jesus-like. Is <laughs> It's so stupid. And the fact that like where it falls in the album too, I always laugh to myself, not even necessarily at the joke, but just the fact that I really ran with that and made a meal out of it. There's also like a follow up punch after that, that I don't like few people might get um, that I don't want to give away, but it's just like little things in there that I like just tickled myself with. And the fact that it's like, there's a lyrical joke and then like a sonic joke after it. I love trying to like put in nonverbal jokes in the music or just like little, not even necessarily jokes, just like a little twist of something. I don't know. That was another really exciting thing is just being able to get a joke off with like a sample or like uh, a sound or something like that. That was, that was really exciting. I was curious as someone who's clearly a, devours a lot of music, are there any musicians that you think are particularly funny that are good lyric writers or like you say you able to use the music in a comedic purpose that have caught your ear danny brown some of the punchlines even going back to triple x like amazing vince staples it's like one thing to have really great wordplay and like really clever writing and like puns and punchlines but he also has like situational humor in his lyrics that i think is really impressive and understated those are two people for sure where it's like i genuinely could see them doing stand-up it's not like oh yeah you got some like really funny bars it's like no i feel like this would translate actually really well have you ever done stand-up at a concert like before opening for a band or a dj or any of that kind of thing actually yeah i did a pitchfork benefit a while back and i did some stand-up and then frankie cosmos went up Yeah, and then Frankie Cosmos closed out a show that I did not too long 
after that. So yeah, I've done it before. And I've done stand-up on lineups where it's just like a bunch, like a variety show kind of thing. And I often find that those are the best shows. When you are able to break people out of the expectations for what they should be getting from said medium, like when you can do a full palate cleanser, I feel like people are more so engaging with what is actually in front of them instead of comparing what they're watching to the person before and the person before that, or even like other things that they've seen. Like when you get the same medium over and over and over again, you start to kind of see the matrix a little bit, which is valuable. Like then you can really hone in on craft and like technical stuff. But the vibe of those shows is always great. Even doing stand-up like on my own, I'd love performing at like music venues. There's something about the energy. Performing at comedy clubs can feel very <laughs> sweaty sometimes. Have you thought about performing the music live? Is that an ambition you have to, to do a proper headline show? I've been cooking up some stuff and I'm gonna announce something soon. I think even like before 2020, I was like, love and stand up it's so much fun but i feel like there is a level of connection with audiences that i'm trying to get to and i don't know if stand up is the right vibe for it but i didn't really know exactly what to replace that with but now i got the music and i'm really excited to at least be able to do a few shows in the foreseeable future and then just know that like I have that in my back pocket. I could plot towards that down the road. Are there similarities between sequencing an album and say an hour of stand-up? You have to kind of hit certain notes and energy points um, in both. So I was curious as to what the crossover was. I think that there's a lot of similarities and I actually would conceptualize stand-up sets, especially my hour sets, in terms of music before I was doing music. And it is kind of inherently musical because of the amount of timing that's involved with certain jokes. And then when you do it even more, I would be like, okay, so this joke needs to come right here. If the laugh is this long, then the joke comes at this time. If the laugh is this long, the joke has to come right here. And the almost improvisational musicality of it, of like, this laugh has to hit this timbre. It needs to sound like that. It needs to feel like this. And if the laugh isn't this, then you got to recover and do that. You start to understand the sound of your set and the audience essentially being an instrument that like you're interacting with, trying to play to get a certain reaction. So with that being said, when it came to music, I found the opposite of like stand-up really inspiring it and writing really inspiring it too in that it's like, okay, well, if we start here and we're at this note, then narratively it would make sense to end at this note. Or if we're at the midpoint and we're feeling this, then narratively it would make sense later to give it a little twinge of this. So I, yeah, I don't think it's possible for me to like fully separate what I'm doing right now from what everything I've done before it's like it's kind of just everything informing everything it's hard to be that split brain you said that the kind of origins of this album was coming off the back of a juice world project you were working where you were kind of writing something inspired by his music um i remember that being announced and sort of thinking it's very interesting i was wondering what kind of the current status of that is because it's something we've not heard about for a little while 
right now it is on ice indefinitely. The thing with getting the rights to uh, music is that working with so many different entities, it's difficult to get everybody on the same board. And then it got to the point where they're like, okay, so no music, but we could still do the movie. And I'm like, but the movie is <laughs> like, that's what this would have been at that point. I'll just, okay, like write a, a movie. Definitely learned a valuable lesson. And moving forward, I will be doing the score and the soundtrack for every movie that I am developing. So yeah, settled that. You mentioned earlier how you kind of like to push the boundaries of comedy a little bit and keep things a bit dangerous. And obviously you were kind of famous for being banned from Twitter. I was curious as to your thoughts on the current kind of status of Twitter, Elon Musk's reign. He's very keen to bring back people who have been chucked off the website in the past. Um, are you tempted to come back and try and get your way back in? Or have you kind of moved on from that now? So like I have the account and everything, uh, but it's just a shell of what it used to be. And I think it's really indicative of the change that the internet has gone through in the past like 20 years, even when you go back and you look at like those little e-shops and those little websites of someone being like, this is my page dedicated to the black-footed ferret. I really love the black-footed ferret. It's like some third graders like class project or something. And there is a slice of internet that is dedicated just to this eight-year-old's little passion. We're so far from that. And I think him buying out what was once about to become a national utility of America. Like there were people who were like, maybe we need to nationalize Twitter. Maybe this is like a utility and a public item that should be treated as such. The fact that this guy just bought it out and is essentially trying to turn it into a strip mall is so indicative of where we are on the internet and kind of how all of the things about analog, like real world, that we were potentially escaping and sublimating through the internet have just seeped in and poisoned the internet entirely. Like we're in the phase of, you know, the internet being a social gathering place. It was like this weird little enchanted forest, I feel like in the 90s and like in the early 2000s and with like some strange dark corners. And now it is literally just a strip mall with a bunch of security guards asking you, are you buying anything? And if you're not buying anything, you need to leave. And like 10 million cameras in every direction. Um, it, it's crazy. I think honestly, where it all started to go down, the quote tweet function. That had irreversible damage. Low key, the concept of like call outs and like dunking on people, quote tweets invented that and kind of changed the way that we interact with people online in general. Like it turned us into everyone like cameras ready, just like, gotcha. I'm about to put you on blast. You're stupid as fuck for saying that. And this is why X, Y, Z. Like when it, that became the mode of interaction, we were, we were cooked. We were done. That was Jabuki Young White talking to the faders David Renshaw. Jabuki's new album, all Who Can't Hear Must Feel drops this Friday, August 25, via Indiscope. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfen. 
We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.